submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 91719, Al C. Parker versus Ricky Harold Raley. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please... We wait till I tell you to go ahead, if, if you will, Mr. Sinego. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Uh, this case concerns Ricky Raley's 1986 conviction as a persistent felony offender under Kentucky law. That conviction was based on two prior guilty plea convictions. On the 1981 conviction... The uh, record was a plea negotiation form. Rayleigh filed a pretrial motion to suppress the evidence of those two prior convictions. At the suppression hearing, uh, Rayleigh acknowledged that the plea, uh, 1981 plea, was recommended by counsel and that he was guilty of the offenses to which he pleaded. The Sixth Circuit ordered a new hearing regarding that plea and resulting persistent felony offender conviction. The uh, Attorney General of the Conflict of Kentucky respectfully contends that because a challenge to a prior conviction offered for purposes of sentencing enhancement is a collateral attack, the convicted defendant should bear the burden of proof to demonstrate the invalidity of the prior conviction. The Kentucky Supreme Court has ruled that the validity of a prior conviction under the persistent felony offender law is not an element of the offense and that ruling should be binding on the federal court under this court's opinion in Martin versus Ohio. Further, the ruling of the Kentucky Supreme Court is fully consistent with the analysis employed by this court in Lewis versus United States under the federal uh, convicted uh, felon in possession of uh, firearm law. Well, the, uh, Mr. Senego, the Kentucky Supreme Court allows a defendant to make some sort of challenge to the validity of a, of a prior conviction in, in this, under this statute, doesn't it? That's correct, Your Honor. It must be by a pretrial motion, and it's a hearing conducted outside the presence of the jury and decided by the judge as a matter of law. But it's also clear, of course, that the Kentucky Supreme Court believes it is compelled to do so under the opinions of this court in allowing such a challenge. So you don't think it was just interpreting Kentucky's, the Kentucky stat, the Kentucky recidivist statute when it said that you can make that sort of challenge? No, Your Honor. Uh, the uh, Commonwealth contends that the Kentucky Supreme Court was viewing itself compelled by decisions of this court. We have cited the case of Commonwealth versus GAD where the court discusses uh, uh, the fact that the, prior the validity of the prior conviction is not an element of the offense itself and uh, believes itself compelled to allow a pretrial challenge in order to comport with due process rulings by this court. So the, the, the Commonwealth wants something more favorable to it from this court than, than it got even from the Supreme Court of Kentucky, say nothing of the Sixth Circuit? Uh... Well, Your Honor, of course, this court could reverse on much narrower grounds. Uh, uh, the Your Honor, the Commonwealth would be happy with a more favorable ruling, but this court could reverse on more narrower grounds simply by putting the burden of proof on the convicted defendant. As the Supreme show. Court of Kentucky did. That's correct, Your Honor. That's 
That's the primary issue that this court must resolve today in, in this case. And certainly there isn't even a more narrow ground than that. Because is it not true that the proceeding that we're involved in is a collateral attack on the 1987 conviction? Uh, it was a habeas corpus uh, proceeding, uh, yes, Your Honor. It was a habeas corpus proceeding against the persistent so the question defendants. in this case is whether the procedure followed in Kentucky satisfies due process sufficiently to, to defeat a collateral attack on the 1987 conviction. Isn't that correct? Yes, Your Honor. It is It is actually a, a double-header collateral attack, if you'll pardon my use of that analogy. We have a habeas corpus attack on the persistent felony offender conviction, which in turn was based on the 1981 conviction subsumed within the persistent felony offender conviction. And I would point out to the court also that according to Raley's habeas corpus petition filed in this case, he was still serving time on the 1981 conviction when he filed that habeas petition. So clearly he was not attacking the 1981 conviction itself, but only uh, insofar as it resulted in a persistent felony offender uh, conviction. In fact, I'm not sure it is even a collateral attack on the 81 conviction. It's the contention that in the 87 proceedings, it's fundamentally unfair to use the 1981 conviction. They wouldn't have to set aside the 81 conviction in order to say that was fundamentally unfair or one way or the other. Was, I, think you, I really think you've only got one collateral attack, and that's this proceeding. Well, Your Honor, I, 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 would be, I would have to agree with you that there should only be one collateral attack. Um, but clearly, you're correct in saying that this collateral attack was brought because of the persistent felony offender conviction. Uh, not because of the 1981 conviction. It would appear, uh, since Mr. Raley did not attack the 1981 conviction, uh, he was satisfied with the result uh, in that situation. Could, could a state uh, say that uh, introducing the record evidence of a conviction is conclusive proof that the uh, person was indeed convicted of the crime for purposes of the persistent felony offender statute? Uh, yes, Your Honor. The Kentucky Supreme Court has said that the judgment is sufficient to satisfy the statute. The well, statute uh, not, not, can, can it be conclusive evidence? Um, yes, Your Honor. It could be conclusive evidence. If, could, if, could, could a state provide that the record conviction itself suffices? Um, Yes, Your Honor, I think the state could provide that by following the analogy of Lewis versus United States and taking a position that a collateral challenge would have to precede the subsequent so that the status of being a person with a record conviction is all that's needed uh, from a constitutional standpoint to suffice for your being convicted under a statute like the PFO statute in Kentucky. Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, I think the, the question about whether or not the challenge should be brought prior to the uh, subsequent offender charge uh, being filed has been discussed by some of the federal courts under the federal sentencing guidelines. And I think there may be a few states that have... Does the same answer apply if, if there is a separate offense for being a PFO? At that point, does the state have some additional burden beyond showing record evidence of the conviction? 
No, Your Honor, I don't think that should make a difference. Kentucky chooses to employ jury sentencing and for that reason requires a persistent felony offender uh, charge be included in the indictment. But I think Kentucky could, uh, if it eliminated jury sentencing, follow something analogous to the federal sentencing Would your answer be the same if all parties conceded that the prior conviction uh, was obtained through an unknowing plea? Uh, Yes, Your Honor, I think it would. I I interpret the cases of this court as What about an uncounseled plea? There's no counsel present. Your Honor, I would have to I would have to say that the precedents of this court established that a defendant may attack a, an uncounseled guilty. Well, why, why? Why? What is the difference in the two cases? The the difference is, Your Honor, the defendant presumably has had the advice of counsel and therefore uh, certainly well, had an opportunity to discuss with counsel the events leading to the guilty plea. Is, it, is, is the difference depend upon the, the fundamentality or the gravity of the constitutional violation? Yes, Your Honor, I, I, think that, I think that is an important point to make because the court has clearly stated that the right to counsel is fundamental. It has been applied retroactively uh, to the criminal cases. Well, under the hypothesis, we're assuming that the uh, guilty plea was, uh, was un, uh, uninformed. Uh, it was... A, completely uninformed waiver. Why is that any different from a case where there's no counsel? Your Honor, I think the difference is the court has assumed that where counsel is not provided, it's more likely an innocent man would plead guilty than uh, otherwise. Uh, Where counsel has been provided, then uh, counsel has the opportunity to point out to the defendant his rights and possible defenses that may exist, the opportunity to discuss the evidence that might be introduced against him, and the possible sentences that may result. Uh, The Commonwealth respectfully contends that the placing the burden of proof on a convicted defendant making a collateral attack for purposes of sentencing enhancement uh, is consistent with uh, this court's ruling in uh, Medina versus California where the court ruled that the state could require the defendant to demonstrate he was incompetent to stand trial and that case was also based on Martin versus Ohio. What's the relevant historical tradition here, do you think? Um, Your Honor, the um, history of the precedents of the court have directed uh, that the denial of counsel is a fundamental right uh, permitting a collateral attack on a guilty plea and have also uh, indicated that an involuntary uh, guilty plea may be collaterally attacked. I don't believe the court has uh, indicated any other basis for a collateral attack. Uh, The court's precedents, such as United States versus Timerick, direct attention to fundamental uh, defects in the proceeding that would make the resulting conviction fundamentally unfair and potentially or probably result in an innocent person uh, 
being convicted. And certainly, uh, probable innocence is an important factor, uh, that, as this court has made clear, in evaluating the circumstances of a collateral attack. The history uh, of the precedence of this court clearly indicate that on a collateral attack, the convicted defendant must bear the burden of proof. That has been clear uh, at least since Johnson versus Zerps in 1938, and this court has repeatedly reiterated uh, that the burden for a collateral attack should fall on the convicted defendant who mounts such an attack. Uh, most recently, in Hill versus Lockhart, the court placed the burden of proof on the convicted defendant to establish ineffective assistance of counsel. And this was consistent with the court's earlier ruling in Strickland versus Washington regarding uh, counsel provided for a trial. The court has also made it clear that a collateral attack is not a substitute for an appeal, and therefore a higher standard must be applied in that situation. And within the context of sentencing enhancement, it really is a double collateral attack uh, that is being uh, mounted in the proceedings. May I ask you a question about the, the yes, nature sir. of the burden you think the uh, petitioner would have? Suppose he gets on the witness stand and says, uh, the judge didn't ask me any questions and I didn't understand my, what the crime was I was charged with. That's all he says. Does that, does that carry his burden? Um, shift the burden to the state to go forward and prove otherwise? Uh, yes, Your Honor, that could shift the burden of proof to the prosecution. Uh, bearing in mind this court said in Marshall v. Longburner that the uh, defendant must convince the trial court of the credibility of his testimony or whatever witnesses. But I, I certainly, if I were prosecuting the case, would want to present whatever evidence I had at that point and not take a chance on the judge deciding that the defendant was a credible witness. But certainly, uh, as this court has uh, indicated, uh, I, I, most recently, I guess, in the dissenting opinion in Marshall uh, in Loper versus Beto, defendant's own testimony uh, certainly opened to serious credibility questions. And I think, again, the uh, lower federal courts have also indicated they have serious doubts about the uh, ease with which a defendant may come forward and, and claim some sort of constitutional violation without any corroboration. But then what if the only other documentary evidence is that there's, there was no transcript prepared, even though nor say normally they do prepare a transcript, but in his case they didn't. Uh, what, what more is he supposed to do in your view? Well, Your Honor, he certainly could present uh, other witnesses such as his former attorney, the former judge, uh, bystanders. Kentucky allows a bystander bill, a bystander who may have observed the proceedings uh, since they normally occur in the courtroom. Um, uh, things of that nature. A court clerk may have been present. Uh, part of the problem, of course, is that, there, as this court has noted, there's no time limit on a collateral attack, and a collateral attack may go back many years. Uh, likewise, Kentucky has no prescribed time limit on making a collateral attack. What, what is the practice in Kentucky about making a transcript of uh, uh, plea, plea hearings? I, I understand the normal practice, Your Honor, has been only if an appeal was taken. The judge could order it, but otherwise uh, it wouldn't be made. 
Mr. Sneagle, when you concede that at least a certain quantity of evidence would be sufficient to shift the burden to the state, do you mean that it would be enough to shift the burden of proof or just that it would be enough to shift the burden of going forward in the sense that uh, if there's a prima facie case made and the state does nothing, the state presumably is going to lose if the, if the judge accepts the evidence uh, as, as it appears. Do you, do you mean then a shifting of the burden of proof or just a, the burden of production? Well, Your Honor, in this case, the Commonwealth is arguing under Johnson versus Zerps it should be the burden of proof, but certainly the opinions of the Kentucky Supreme Court seem to indicate it's simply the burden of producing the evidence. Uh, apparently, Kentucky follows the slightly lower standard at, at, at this point. Mr. Senego, just uh, I, my understanding is that you did not raise below the contention that, that the entire uh, issue could not be raised on habeas. The matter of the Boykin warning, Your Honor? That's right. Your Honor, the Commonwealth's position is that that was inherent in our argument that Dunn versus Simmons was wrongly decided and is inherent in the issue of which side must bear the burden of proof because the question becomes how is that burden of proof to be satisfied? Uh, cases were cited such as Hill versus Lockhart uh, from this court also indicating uh, uh, that Boykin was not a, an, an essential component of a valid guilty plea. I'll reserve the. Did you make the argument uh, below in the Court of Appeals that for purposes of federal habeas corpus, uh, uh, this kind of a claim uh, was not entertainable? No, Your Honor, that was not a, pres that was not a precise argument caption that we presented. The so court you're making of an argument here that wasn't made in the Court of Appeals? Yes, in one sense, Your Honor, but we're contending that it was subsumed within the other arguments presented, the argument that Dunn versus Simmons was wrongly decided. How was it subsumed? Tell me again. Uh, we contended that the Sixth Circuit's opinion in Dunn versus Simmons was an error, which placed the burden of proof on the Commonwealth. You mean the state court was an error? Uh, the Sixth Circuit's yes. opinion in Dunn versus Simmons. And by asking the Sixth Circuit to re-examine that ruling, uh, we contend that they also had to re-examine whether it failed to grant a Boykin warning. Uh, more recently, in the McLaughlin case, the Sixth Circuit seems to have indicated a, a Boykin warning is not an essential component of a guilty plea. May I ask one further just practical question? As I understand, you don't write up the transcript if there's no appeal. Are the are the stenographer's notes either preserved on tape or available if, if they were challenged, say, within two or three years? I can understand how they'd be lost if you had to wait 10, 15 years. But uh, is there I, I believe there, uh, the, this Chief Justice of the Kentucky Supreme Court has directed the stenographers to try to save their notes for five years. But there are, there, there's no further evidence in, the, in this case. They don't uh, regularly make uh, sound transcripts of, the, of these hearings, do they? Your Honor, I believe that some court reporters do and some don't. That's up to the court reporter, in other words. Yes, Your Honor, that's my understanding. I'll reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Sonigo. Uh, Mr. Manning, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I'd like to begin by explaining what we think, believe is the proper standard for evaluating this claim. We believe that it's set forth in this Court's decision in Chapman versus United States. In that case, the court held that a person who has been convicted is eligible and the court may impose whatever punishment is authorized by statute for the offense, 
so long as that penalty is not cruel and unusual, and so long as the penalty is not based on some arbitrary distinction that would violate the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. In this case, the Kentucky Supreme Court has definitively interpreted its persistent felony offender statute to turn on the fact of conviction. As uh, my colleague from the Commonwealth pointed out, that is clear from the Court's decision in Commonwealth versus GAD at page 917. It says the fact of conviction is what the, what the statute relies on. The question is whether it is arbitrary for the state to treat somebody as a persistent or repeat offender on the basis of the fact of a prior conviction. And we believe that it is not irrational for the state to do so, even if the state is unwilling to allow a collateral attack in which the defendant may raise every issue that he could have raised on a direct appeal of the prior conviction. May I just ask, because I, I want to be sure I understood you correctly. You say as a matter of Kentucky law, the fact of conviction is the critical. Is that an element of the offense that must be proved beyond a reasonable doubt as a matter of Kentucky law? It, it does have to be proved beyond a, a reasonable doubt under Kentucky law, and it is proven to the jury. But this Court's cases have for, for many years made clear that it is not, it is not dispositive that an offense is uh, is that a, I'm sorry, that a persistent felony offender status is determined by a jury and even determined by, beyond a reasonable doubt. In Graham versus West Virginia, the court said, even though it's charged separately, even though it's decided by a jury, a persistent felony offense uh, is a sentencing factor that enhances the punishment. It is not a separate offense as such. And even if it were, the question would be the same, whether it's rational for the state to treat some people as persistent offenders and punish them more harshly on the ground that they have prior convictions. And we believe that it is rational for the state to do so, even if, as I, as I mentioned, there is not a full right to appeal. There's nothing in this Court's cases that says that to, to treat somebody as a persistent felony offender, they have to be retried for their past crimes. Mr. Uh, Manning, is, I, I, do some states characterize their uh, uh, recidivist statutes as being separate offenses? as yes. opposed to sentencing enhancing, and, 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 and if they do, uh, are they then required to prove the prior offenses beyond a reasonable doubt, or is your answer still the same? It, it depends on how they, I mean, under this court's cases, such as Martin versus Ohio and Patterson versus, versus New York, the answer is that, that it doesn't really matter whether they treat them as offenses as such or as sentencing factors under state laws. They are free to define the offenses in a manner that treats the prior conviction as such, the fact of conviction, as the critical element. There's nothing in this Court's cases that suggests that the validity in general of a prior conviction must be an element of, of an offense. And indeed, in, in response to one of to Justice O'Connor's question, uh, the history is quite to the contrary. The longstanding tradition was that states would, would traditionally allow people charged as multiple offenders or treated and, or, and sentenced as persistent offenders to attack their prior convictions only on the ground that the prior conviction was entered by a court without uh, jurisdiction over the prior offense. And uh, that, that is evident from 25 Amjur at page 266 to 267, 1940, uh, 16 Corpus Juris at 1342, 1918, Kelly versus People. Is the rule the same if the conviction is uncounseled, if there's no compliance with Gideon? No, no, Your Honor. The, the, the rules are slightly different when the conviction is uncounseled, and that, that's uh, 
evident from this case, court's cases in Tucker and Burgett. But we believe that the reason that's so is that the right to counsel is on a different plane from typical errors that, that would in fact a conviction. As this court has stated many times, the right to counsel goes to the very integrity of the <clears throat> fact-finding process. Is there anything else that's on that plane? Uh, well, we, we would suggest that, that the, the kind of error would have to be a fundamental structural error, such as perhaps the uh, adjudication of the case before a kangaroo court or the adjudication of the case before a biased judge, something that went to the very legitimacy of the process and not merely caused <coughs> one to doubt the reliability of the conviction, but the very legitimacy of the proceeding from which it was rendered. And that, that by the way, brings the, the Tucker and Burgett line of cases into line with the traditional, traditional basis for providing relief from final judgments of conviction, i.e., that it was rendered by a court that didn't have competent jurisdiction. What about a case in which the defendant had a lawyer but did not speak English and the lawyer didn't speak anything but English and the judge didn't speak anything but English? Would that be sufficient to taint the conviction? Your Honor, that, that is, that is, your question essentially is, is the same as asking whether a, a defendant can raise a voluntariness claim in general uh, in the context of a collateral attack in a sentence enhancement proceeding. And our answer to that would be no. We think that, in, that, that the question is whether society can rationally treat a final conviction as conclusive without giving the defendant an opportunity in the run of cases to raise all manner of trial error in the prior conviction. In the hypothetical I gave you, if the lawyer wasn't there, he could set it aside. I'm sorry? In the hypothetical I gave you, the, the presence of the lawyer would make the difference? The president, well, presumably, the, the lawyer would, yes, if the, if the defendant has a lawyer, then the, then the court's... Even if the defendant can't communicate with the lawyer? Well, the lawyer presumably will get an interpreter, Your Honor. Well, I'm assuming you didn't in the case. They were busy, you know, some of these courtrooms were Honor, busy. Your with, Honor, with respect, it's always possible to come up with, that, with very uh, egregious hypotheticals. Right to counsel, and that's it. Well, the, the courts... Or, or, don't, or no jurisdiction. Right to counsel and fundamental structural errors that would be equivalent, and we, we frankly think there are very few. And I, I would like to point out that what, whatever the class of errors is, Boykin is far, far from it. It is a prophylactic error. It is, it is not to say that, that a court has violated Boykin is not to say that it has violated the Constitution. What about a plea where all admit that the plea was entered... Uh, uh, unknowingly and, with, and without knowledge of, of, of any rights. Again, again, Your Honor, that, that, that would be the same question as Justice Stephen has asked, which is whether, it, whether it, the state must allow the defendant to raise such a claim. I mean, if, if the defendant is certainly as a matter of state law, the state could allow a defendant to raise <clears throat> such a claim, but the question is whether it would be irrational to foreclose a defendant from raising challenges to the voluntariness of, of his plea in the run of cases and to treat a prior conviction as conclusive of the fact that this person is a repeat offender and deserves harsher punishment than somebody who has not previously been convicted. I mean, the due process inquiry in this case is very, very close to an equal protection question. You have two defendants, both of whom are identical in every respect, except that one of them has never been convicted of a crime before, and one of them has a record that has two prior convictions that are regular on their face. And we submit that under this court's cases, the, the question is whether it is a rational distinction to punish the second defendant who has two convictions more heavily. And the answer is, with the exception of fundamental errors in the prior convictions, 
such as the ones that were identified by this court's cases in Tucker and Burgett, it is entirely rational for the states to make that differentiation and entirely constitutional for the, the, the states to, uh, to implement their persistent felony offender statutes on that basis. If there are no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Manning. Uh, Mr. Clare, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. This is an extremely important case because it deals with Boykin versus Alabama and the rights of defendants to be guaranteed their constitutional rights. Every morning at 9 a.m., Monday through Friday in Louisville, Kentucky, in the Hall of Justice, the first floor is swarming with people. There are eight district courts that line the left-hand side of the courthouse. And outside the double doors of each of those courts, there's hundreds of defendants waiting their turn. You're talking about what, Jefferson County? In Jefferson, that's Jefferson County, Kentucky, where this plea was taken. These defendants are charged with everything from speeding tickets, traffic violations, to multiple count felony complaints. The atmosphere of the courthouse resembles a bus station before the passengers are boarded and the buses are about to depart. The defendants wait their turn, waiting their turn, come from all walks of life. Most of them, though, are undereducated and from the lower socioeconomic background. Each court has on its dockets 50 to 200 cases. It goes from 9 o'clock in the morning until 11.30. Afternoon court starts at 1 o'clock. There's three to four prosecutors in each courtroom conferencing the cases. There's a judge, a couple sheriffs, and a clerk. The goal of everybody is to get the cases decided and to move on to the next one. They have an hour and a half for lunch. They have an hour and a half. That's more than we do. They usually get an hour, but they go up till 12 o'clock. <laughs> but the pace in the courts is hectic. The prosecutors and the judge need to finish their docket and to move on. Because of this, there's a strong pressure to plead guilty. The court wants to clean its docket, the defense counsel wants to get to the next client, and the prosecutor wants to finish his job for that morning. The only time that the Constitution comes up in all these proceedings is when the Boykin sheet comes into play. The Boykin sheet sets forth the constitutional rights that defendants have. Before the court will take a plea, that it wants a Boykin sheet in that case jacket, and it reviews that Boykin sheet with each of the defendants. The defendant signs on the bottom, the defense counsel signs on the bottom, and the judge signs on the bottom, and it's placed in the record. It lists the constitutional rights, and the defendant states in open court on the record that he has read the Boykin sheet, that he's aware of his constitutional rights, and when he's pleading, he knows he's waving them. That's a video recorded in some of the courtrooms, but audio recorded in all of the courtrooms. Of course, he might lie about that just as he lie about his guilty plea, right? A defendant may lie. I mean, just, the just to move things along, as you say. I... Many times, people will enter into a plea of, of guilty for many different reasons. But the important point here is that on the record, he has acknowledged that he's giving up certain rights. 
You're, you're, you're painting this as, as, as a right somehow so fundamental that it, 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 it requires uh, uh, the permission of, of collateral attack in a, in a subsequent proceeding, and I fail to see that it's that fundamental. I, I'm sure it's very useful. I have no doubt about that. But, but you're, you're telling us that in order to rush things along, defendants are willing to plead guilty, but, uh, but in order to rush things along, they would not be willing to say, well, what do you want me to say for the Boykin sheet? Of course, yes, I'll, I'll say whatever you need, need said. I, I mean, maybe, but I don't see how that's so fundamental that we should allow it to be attacked collaterally. We're, collat- we're collaterally attacking the 1987 conviction, which is an attack at the procedure used by the state of Kentucky. Justice Stevens stated that, I believe, you only get one collateral attack here. The collateral attack is of the 87, not the 81 and the 79 conviction. Wherein you say their procedure is bad is that it does not permit a collateral attack on the earlier conviction, right? Isn't that when you're, wherein you say their procedure was bad? That, well, the way, yes. That's how their procedure is incorrect. Because Boykin says that if the record is silent as to the waiver of these constitutional rights, then it is that conviction is void. What the Sixth Circuit done, has done is to follow the line of the waiver of, tr- of the right to counsel cases, saying that when the record is silent, silent you get a hearing. And there's a presumption against the waiver of those constitutional rights that are inherent in a plea of guilty. So you think a Boykin violation is on the same level as the violation of the failure to furnish counsel at all? As far as that, yes. A Boykin violation is meaning that the defendant has not been advised of his rights on the record. There's no guarantee that he is advised of his constitutional rights, and therefore that conviction is void. If, in other words, you're saying it, it, is, it is enough simply to prove a collateral attack now, it is enough simply to prove that he didn't get the, uh, the, the warnings from the judge himself, uh, it is not necessary to go further and prove that his plea was, in fact, unknowing uh, or, or, uh, or involuntary. That is exactly what this court said in Boykin versus Alabama. Well, Boykin, that, was Boykin a collateral attack? Boykin was not a collateral attack. Okay. And it was dicta, too. To say that something was void is dicta. Boykin did not, did not address collateral attack, and the, but the rights that were being given up in Boykin were fundamental constitutional rights, which is the same thing that is taking place when, the, when you enter to a guilty plea and if you waive your right to counsel. They're fundamental constitutional rights. Well, Mr. Clare, now this, the defendant, uh, after this 1987 conviction, could have challenged in a direct appeal any claim that he might have that uh, he didn't waive his constitutional rights, could he not? He challenged his procedurally. That was open to him on direct appeal? On direct appeal, he went straight from the circuit court Mm. on his motion to suppress the entry of the convictions to the Court of Appeals. No, I'm talking about the earlier conviction itself when it was handed down. The 87 conviction? Yes. Well, I think, I, he, as I recall it, he was charged most recently in Kentucky as a persistent offender. Correct. 
and Kentucky relied on two earlier convictions. That's yes. Now, on both earlier convictions, is it not true that the defendant could have challenged on direct appeal whatever claim he had at that time? Yes, he, he could have. He didn't understand his rights. Yes. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And yet you say that now, later, when he's charged with some consequence of those final convictions, that now he can still make that kind of a challenge. That's your position. My position is that this is not now a collateral attack of those convictions. Well, your position is that now, after they have become final, that he can nevertheless reopen the validity of those convictions. My position is that now that they're final and the state of Kentucky wants to use them to prove the present crime of being a persistent felony offender, they must prove those elements of that crime beyond a reasonable doubt. When they enter the conviction, at that point, he may challenge. You're saying that the Constitution requires Kentucky to require more than just putting into evidence those convictions. That's correct. Once the defendant alleges that the convictions are not constitutionally valid. Don't the vast majority of states just allow proof of the former conviction? Once the defendant alleges that they were not constitutionally valid and there is not a silent record, the presumption is in the defendant's favor that he did not waive his constitutional rights. And there's no record there to prove that he did. Who cares? I mean, you say the presumption is in his favor. That assumes that it's relevant whether he waived his rights or not. You say they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. They have proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he stands convicted of these prior crimes. The element of the offense is standing convicted of these prior crimes, you're convicted of an additional crime. They have proved beyond a reasonable doubt that, indeed, he was convicted of those prior crimes. Your argument is, well, he was wrongly convicted of those prior crimes. But that's not an element of the offense. The offense is that he was convicted and has not, by appeal, overturned those convictions. It seems to me the element is entirely proven. The state of Kentucky states it as a conviction. I do not believe that the state legislature meant that it meant an invalid conviction or a conviction that was not constitutionally valid. It must be assumed that the legislature, when they said conviction, that it meant a conviction that was valid under the Constitution. I doubt whether the legislature meant all prior convictions to be retried every time, which is the only way you can know for sure that it was a valid conviction, is to retry it. It seems to me if it's there on the books and he hasn't appealed, it's a valid conviction. Mr. Clare, are you attacking the former conviction as such or attacking its use here? I'm attacking its use. You're not attacking the conviction? I'm not attacking the conviction at all. Isn't that a significant distinction? That is the distinction that I've been trying to establish here, and I thank you for bringing that up. We're not attacking or he's not seeking relief from the 81 or from the 79 one. It can't be used because it's invalid. Isn't that what you're saying? It cannot be used because it's invalid. That's correct. The time to show that it was invalid was the time it was received by appealing it and getting it set aside. Let me put it another way. Is it irrational for the state, you think it is irrational for the state to say that a person who has been lawfully convicted, has failed to take an appeal, and the conviction is still on the book, 
deserves to be punished for a later crime as a repeat offender more more severely than someone who does not stand in, in, in that situation. Is that an irrational judgment on the part of the state? That was a long sentence. I, I wanted to be sure I, wanted to be sure I wasn't leaving no. anything out. <laughs> the state, in the sentencing phases, can establish any elements that it wants, as long as they're within parameters, in order to enhance the defendant's sentence. This is not the same as like in the federal sentencing guidelines, where they have adopted certain elements to be used in the sentencing phase. This Mr. Rayleigh has been convicted of a crime. And to prove the crime, they must show all the elements, prove all elements. One of the elements is a conviction. That's all the state said there. And that's where we go back to the, the waiver of counsel cases and basically what the Sixth Circuit has done is to say under Boykin, if the record is silent, it is presumed that that conviction is invalid constitutionally. And then they have a hearing. And that's what the Sixth Circuit's ruling was. The hearing should be redone in the state of Kentucky using the correct federal standard. Well, I suppose in one sense, uh, under your theory of the case at least, uh, you would still have an argument uh, for uh, uh, the defendant, even if we said Boykin is a prophylactic rule, it cannot be alleged on collateral attack, Stone versus Powell applies. I assume under your theory of the case, you could still argue that the conviction was uh, uh, improper and that Kentucky has therefore n not made its case uh, in the 1987 proceeding. In a sense, you don't, boy, it can certainly help you, but it's not essential for you to make this defense, is it? I don't believe I understood that correctly. In other words, you argue in, in a case that uh, comes up that's like this, uh, even if we've said that uh, Boykin is not available on collateral attack, you say, well, that's irrelevant. The state has the burden to show that the conviction was uh, properly entered. That's correct. Um, I'm asserting in, that, in, in that sense, although Boykin helps you, it's not essential to your case. I'm asserting that this is not a that, that this is not a collateral attack of those prior convictions, and there are issues raised about Stone versus Powell being a prophylactic rule. First off, it was alleged that those could not be addressed here by this court because they were not raised in the lower courts, were not considered by the Sixth Circuit in their opinion. It was raised was not raised in the petition for cert. It wasn't until the final briefs here that that came up. But, but, if, but if that is so, it, it seems to me that you have to answer the uh, arguments made by Kentucky and by the uh, Solicitor General and indicate, rephrased by Justice Scalia, that the, that, the that the gravamen of the offense here is being convicted of a third offense when you have the status of being convicted of two earlier ones, whether or not those convictions were valid. My response is the same as with Justice Scalia, was that by using the word convict in the statute, that the legislature placed in there or assumed, although we cannot assume what they meant by this, because they didn't state exactly, but they used the word to convict. 
and that there would not have been an assumption to use an invalid conviction or a constitutional I would have no problem if the, if the, you know, the Kentucky Supreme Court decided the case on that basis, that when our legislature said convict, it meant validly convict. They're free to say that, that that's what their legislature meant. But I had thought, in fact, I'm sure, that this case comes up here on the basis that uh, uh, regardless of what the state legislature intended, the Constitution requires the federal constitution requires that the prior conviction have been a valid conviction or that he be be permitted to to prove that it wasn't at least in so far as the the the, the boykin issue is concerned isn't that how the case comes before us and that is yes and if they were if the state of kentucky they were they cited the case of gad versus commonwealth which was based upon forget versus texas and i believe that the decision of the state of kentucky the Supreme Court there was const- was wrong on his fi- following Burgett. The state of Kentucky, in essence, would, would not allow any defendant to come back and challenge any conviction that was used on the PFO, whether or not he had counsel or not, under that scenario. And I believe that these rights that you waive when you enter a guilty plea are equal to the right to counsel. They're in, in fact, in the case of the Supreme Court of Duke versus Warden, you all noted that the waiver or the entering of a guilty plea is one of the most devastating waivers that there is because you're giving up three constitutional rights at one time. And the right to counsel that you can't put a, a hierarchy between those constitutional rights. And if a defendant has waived his right to trial or right to call witnesses or right to be free from self-incrimination, that those are just as important as his right to counsel. He should have the opportunity to challenge a, a guilty plea that is being used to prove a present crime. He did have counsel in this instance. Yes, he did. Do you think part of your submission is that that uh, the guilty plea uh, does not necessarily indicate that uh, he was actually guilty of the offenses? Actual? Yes, well, don't, uh, just the fact that he wasn't advised doesn't mean that he didn't admit that he committed the offenses. That's almost a distinction between a I mean, voluntariness is that, in, uh, volunta- the voluntariness requirement doesn't necessarily, uh, if ignored, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't admit the offenses and that his admission are, is valid. A confession would have been... Yes. It could have been equivalent to a confession, which is not the same thing at all as a conviction. Well, yeah, he could have confessed. He, he did plead guilty, didn't he? He did plead guilty. And didn't he, didn't he, uh, didn't he, didn't he agree that he committed the offenses charged? Well, with his plea of guilty, that is what takes place. Yes, yes. Did you admit, you admit that but you But you're not... You're, you're not saying that these convictions were invalid in the sense that he didn't commit the offense. It's just that he wasn't advised properly uh, in, ple- in pleading guilty. I do not know the specific facts of what Mr. Raley did or whether or not the facts actually constituted the crime. The record's not there to show, and, and I cannot state to this court that his plea of guilty wasn't a admission or a confession as to the elements of the crime. Because there's not a record to tell me that. And 
Uh, a plea of guilty was always an, an admission to all the elements of the crime. It, a plea of guilty is an admission to all the elements of the crime. That's, maybe I'm not seeing what the, the distinction that you're trying to make. Well, are, are, you, uh, are you saying that, that if, if a plea is involuntary, it may not be, it, it, it is not a knowing confession or not a knowing admission of all the elements of the crime? Knowing and intelligent. But the issue here is, is whether or not Kentucky has created a record so that those convictions may be reviewed later. And that's what Boykin was so insistent upon. Well, the, the issue is really whether the Constitution requires Kentucky to have created a record so as to justify a, a, a challenge to a conviction. Whether or not Boykin as presently I prefer to the, Constitu the Constitution. Yeah. But the, con what, the Constitution guarantees certain rights to the defendants. And then Boykin is interpreted to mean that those rights must be told to the defendants on the record, and the court has the duty to advise those defendants on the record of those constitutional rights. But in essence, if a defendant has constitutional rights he's not aware of, they're not of any substantial use to him. And I believe that is the purpose behind Boykin, to advise the defendants of their rights and then places a duty upon the court to make sure that he is aware of those rights. I take it you, you're, you're contending that uh, the federal constitution requires the Kentucky courts uh, in an enhancement proceeding to, uh, to uh, entertain attacks on prior convictions. I mean, the, the, Kentucky, the Kentucky court did uh, entertain the attack, yes, uh, and I suppose you contend that the federal constitution requires them to. Yes, that, that is and hence, uh, you, and and similarly, you think the federal constitution requires a federal habeas court to entertain those claims of the invalidity of prior convictions. In the instance where you're when you're using the conviction to prove a present crime. Yeah. The habeas corpus is distinguished from that yeah. because it's not being used to, to convict a defendant of a present crime. A habeas is a collateral attack for relief, but it's not establishing a new present crime of a persistent felony offender status. The state of Kentucky could, the legislature could rewrite their sentencing rules. And if they did, we may not be here. But they haven't. They have used the word conviction. Claire, um, this may be just a, just a problem of terminology, but I'm, I'm not sure I agree with you that this is not a collateral attack. Uh, uh, it, it seems to me that a collateral attack consists of any, anything that seeks to deprive a prior judgment of its normal effect. It doesn't have to dissolve the prior judgment entirely, but anything that seeks to deprive it of what would be its normal effect. So if in a later suit, for example, you seek to uh, deny res judicata effect to an earlier decision. That's considered a collateral attack on the earlier decision. If you say it was a wrong decision, therefore it shouldn't be res judicata. That's a collateral attack. And that's what you're seeking to do here. You're seeking to say that this, this conviction, which would normally have the effect of rendering you liable to a higher penalty the next time you're convicted, in this case should not have that effect because it was not a valid judgment. 
Why isn't that properly called a collateral attack on the judgment? Well, the collateral attack as used in a habeas proceeding, the distinction that I'm trying to maintain. Well, I understand that. It certainly is not, you're correct that it is, it does not undo the whole, the whole, every aspect of the prior decision the way a habeas proceeding would. But the point I make to you is that a collateral attack does not always do that. There are many other sorts of collateral attacks, and it seems to me this is one sort of collateral attack. That may be true, and your analogy may be correct, but it is very distinguishable from a habeas proceeding. And that's what I'm, the point is that on the habeas proceeding, they may be, the defendant may be greatly limited, but here it is not a habeas proceeding, it's a correct procedure to use in the lower court level when they're proving a persistent felony offender. And that's the distinction that I'm trying to draw. <clears throat> the petitioner would have the state of Kentucky allow the presumption of regularity of the prior convictions to overcome the presumption against the waiver of a constitutional right. We submit that the presumption against the waiver of a constitutional right, as this court has recognized in the waiver of counsel cases, is a much greater presumption than the interest of having a presumption of regularity in the, in the prior convictions. It was also discussed the burden of proof that would take place in the hearing that the Sixth Circuit has remanded it back to the state of Kentucky for. And what is the proper burden of proof? Because this court has said in the, the right to counsel cases that those convictions are presumptively invalid, we believe that the burden of proof here should be at least a clear and convincing burden of proof. They have asserted that the burden of proof should be by a preponderance of the evidence inside of Johnson versus Zerps. But Johnson versus Zerps was entered long before the right to counsel cases had come into play. And the right to counsel cases would support at least a clear and convincing standard of proof in placing the burden upon the Commonwealth to prove that the conviction is constitutionally valid. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Clare. Mr. Sonigal, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, sir. Um, I'd just like to point out again that the Kentucky Supreme Court concluded in Commonwealth versus GAD that the validity of a prior conviction is not an element that the Commonwealth must prove and concluded that such a challenge had to be entertained only because it perceived opinions of this court requiring such a challenge. Uh, well, can, can you give us one case for that proposition, Mr. Sonigo? The Kentucky Supreme Court case, Your Honor? Yes. Uh, Commonwealth versus GAD. It's cited. GADD. Yes, Your Honor. It's cited in the Commonwealth's brief on pages 21 and 22. Oh, thank you. Um, and it specifically states it's the fact of the conviction which the Commonwealth must prove for purposes of a persistent felony offender. With respect to the clear and convincing standard of proof, this court has repeatedly rejected that standard for purposes of habeas corpus uh, proceedings and for purposes of establishing the uh, voluntariness of a confession. It was rejected by this court uh, for purposes of sentencing in McMillan versus Pennsylvania 
and certainly appears to be inconsistent with Summer versus Matta. Finally, the conflict would point out that opinions of this Court subsequent to Boykin have never identified a Boykin warning as a fundamental requirement of a valid uh, guilty plea, uh, North Carolina versus Alfred, Hill versus Lockhart, United States versus Brochie. There are no questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sonico. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.